This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we spotlight the art and science of peacemaking throughout history and in our lives today. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. I've been running into video games a lot more than usual lately. Now, I preceded the gaming generation, did a little Pong in the late 1970s, then I never picked up the joystick or game controller again, really. But I spent a week with my nephew recently as he recovered from some surgery, and he introduced me to Guitar Hero 3. Now, this is the video game that challenges you to keep up with a rock band on stage. You press buttons on a fake guitar to match the notes of the lead guitarist on rock classics. Now, I mastered the easy level and begged my nephew to let me try intermediate. He said, Uncle Paul, you are so not ready for intermediate. And uh, ultimately, he was right. Then a few weeks later, I was visiting my parents at their retirement complex, where once a week in a meeting room, they project a big-screen virtual bowling video game. Players hold a wand in their hand as they mimic the rolling of the ball, and sure enough, on the screen, a ball rolls down the lane and knocks down pins. It was a blast, even if everyone in my foursome, all my parents' age, trounced me. Hey, there's a learning curve. What can I tell you? Anyway, I was getting a video game's good vibe out of these experiences. But also recently, I was getting this video game's not-so-good vibe out of seeing commercials for top-selling violent video games like Call of Duty, Halo, or Grand Theft Auto. The ads for these games really seem to be selling the violent nature of their content. Are you in, big guy? We're going to have to kill you. If most people consider it a worthy goal to do something to temper the violence running rampant in our culture, I found myself thinking that violent video games might be worth a look. Today on Peace Talks Radio, the video game violence debate. And it is a debate. While almost no one is for letting young kids play the most violent games, there are authors and academics who defend the presence of violence in games particularly for adults and question the strength of the research studies that suggest that exposure to violent entertainment correlates with aggression and desensitization toward violence. On the other side, there are those who decry the violence in any case, believe the negative effects research to be true, and call for tighter restrictions on violent game sales and content. We'll hear both sides of the conversation today. Bob McCannon is a media scholar, educator, and media reform activist. He's co-founder and co-president of the Action Coalition for Media Education, ACME for short. He says research shows most parents have no idea the level of violence their kids are being exposed to in popular entertainment these days. There's a tremendous body of evidence indicating that participating in media violence is undoubtedly a cause of aggressive behavior, increased fear in kids, and perhaps most importantly, desensitization. And, um, you know, let me throw in the caveat that, of course, people that accept this research are not saying that media violence is the only cause of violent behavior and aggression in kids. But there is a tremendous body. We're not talking about dozens of studies here. We're talking about hundreds of studies. It would give anyone pause about 
the incredible dose of violence that we're injecting into the culture of our our youngest children who are the most vulnerable and forming the attitudes that are going to take them through the rest of their life. If 90% of the T-rated games, which are rated for 13-year-olds, if 90% of them involve killing people 55 times an hour, which is the current rate, um, you would have to wonder how in the world would this not have an effect? Now, people like this say, well, I play video games, but I'm not a serial killer. But does that mean that you don't lose your temper a little bit more with your children? Does that mean that you are as patient with your wife or your co-workers as you should be? I mean, when the research shows clearly that the correlations between playing violent video games and being more aggressive, being more desensitized, are greater than the correlations between self-examination and breast cancer, exposure to asbestos and laryngeal cancer, homework and academic achievement. And I could go on. There's a tremendous list of things that don't correlate as strongly as the correlation between playing video games and being more aggressive, being more desensitized. And is there any doubt that we have a culture in which kids are acting in ways that demonstrate desensitization, disrespect for themselves, other kids, teachers, school, studies, so on and so forth. You can't tell me that playing violent video games for 23 to 24 hours a week is the way to raise the kinds of citizens that we need to be responsible participants in a democracy. That's media educator Bob McCannon. Arizona State University education professor James Paul G. comes at the video game violence debate from a different place. He's written numerous books about video gaming, including What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy, and Why Video Games Are Good for Your Soul. For years, he wasn't too interested in video games until he had a son of his own. I was uh, playing video games with my child who was six years old at the time. He was playing Pajama Sam, and I decided I would play through the game so that I could help him play it, only to discover that uh, he could do it perfectly well without me, and sometimes that helped me. And uh, it intrigued me. The video game intrigued me uh, as a problem-solving space. I had no idea what an adult game would be like, so I bought one that was... Uh, for an older audience and was just blown away how long, how hard, and how difficult it was and thought, wow, people are spending $50 to do something this hard and uh, call it entertainment and call it fun. And eventually I saw as I stuck with it, and it wasn't easy sticking with it, um, that the real deep pleasure of it was how it pushed you to you know, exercise new learning muscles and to engage in new forms of learning. You know, what school taught me when I was in it is that people are smart when they're fast and efficient to their goals. Uh, but games really discourage that type of behavior. They want you to explore everything. They want you to think laterally and not just linearly. And they want you to rethink your goals from time to time. So uh, for a baby boomer, uh, you know, you go to the game feeling smart and you end up feeling stupid. <laughs> and ultimately that's good for your soul? I think that is good for you. I think that we live in a world in which everybody, no matter how old, has to get ready to learn new things. And uh, we need to get everybody, in a sense, to be more like a child and explore new learning opportunities all the time. So the first line in your more recent book is, 
I want to talk about video games, yes, even violent video games, and say some positive things about them. So you bring that right to the fore. You have said that most of the ink devoted to the question of whether playing violent video games leads to violent behavior has been wasted ink. Tell me, tell me what you mean. Well, it's it's been wasted ink in in part because uh, the question about any media, whether it's television or books for that matter or games, is not whether they're good or bad, not whether they lead to good or bad behavior, uh, but under what conditions they're used and what context are they used and, and what effects do you get in those contexts. There is no simple answer to a question, are video, video games good? or are they bad? It depends what you do with them. And so what we need to study is the context in which they're being used. No doubt um, there are contexts in which they're no good for you, and we certainly know now there are contexts in which they're quite good for you. But exactly the same is true of books. Uh, you know, people who take sacred books like the Bible, the Koran, and read them uh, as recipes and orders to kill people have done a huge amount of violence in the world, but we don't want to ban those books. We realize it's a lot of lot. It's contingent, really, on uh, what the culture is in which within the book is being read and the context in which it's being read. So, is it about um, identifying the uh, troublesome contexts? It's the the troublesome context, and also about uh, realizing that when we talk about video games, we're talking about a relatively new technology uh, whose potential we have barely realized. We've made maybe 1% of the type of games we could make. If you look at the very short history of video games, originally lots of them were hack and slash, shoot them up, all you did was shoot, because that was an easy thing to program in a time when programming was pretty difficult. Now, as the technology has got more sophisticated, you see infinitely more sophisticated games. Even so-called violent games uh, now involve a great deal of problem-solving, strategy, stealth. There are games like uh, SWAT 4, where you have to be a SWAT team member, where it's you know not all that easy to kill anybody because you have to abide by the values and rules of a policeman and warn people uh, to put their gun down, and you have to do it repeatedly, and you can't shoot them unless they're about to shoot you. So in those games, you usually end up being the one uh, to die. But there's also, you know, thousands of games made. There were 6,000 alone for the PlayStation 2, and a good number of them are not violent. The best-selling game in history, The Sims, made by Will Wright, who's a real genius in this field, uh, do- involves really no violence. So as a parent, though, I mean, do you have any uh, empathy for the concern about antisocial or negative messages that come through in those violent games? Oh, uh, certainly. In uh, My 12-year-old doesn't play M-rated games. He never has. He's never even asked to play one. There's plenty for him to play without playing uh, M-rated games. Uh, what I look for as a parent is that children are playing the games strategically. That is, they're thinking about strategies and problem solving. They're talking about the games to other people and to their parents. They're relating the game technology to other technologies like fan fiction or making websites or engaging in activities with other kids. Uh, They're multitasking. They're not just playing games. They're reading books. I mean, to give you an example, we've watched seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds play a game called Age of Mythology. They play the game, but they go on uh, the web and they read about mythology. They took books out of the library in mythology. They write about mythology. They draw mythological characters. They uh, even send messages to boards on websites complaining that there's no Native American mythology in the game. So uh, when kids are doing that, um, I'm not worried. In fact, they're going to be paying for their parents' retirement. But if all they're doing is sitting there uh, pushing buttons in a game, as a form of babysitting, it's, it, or if they're just watching television as a form of babysitting, then, then I'm worried.
The other thing that we have to say, and this is crucial for people to realize, is that gamers, when they're playing a game like Grand Theft Auto, sophisticated gamers, or playing a game like Far Cry, are not looking at the images and being titillated by them. The games are too difficult. They are looking through the images, through what they call the eye candy, to look for the points in which they can get strategies going to succeed. And that's really how you tell the difference between a person who shouldn't be playing the game and a person who should. Because if, the, if it's being played strategically, you could, you could change every shooting episode in Grand Theft Auto to simply taking pictures. And the strategies and problems would be the same. Uh, and, and it's the strategies and problems that the players enjoy in that game. Uh, people who are just playing the game because they like to revel in images of violence or images of poverty or anything, just like people who would watch serious television for those reasons, we have to worry about. Mm. Arizona State's James G. and Bob McCannon agree on that concern. But for McCannon, the argument that violent games develop problem-solving skills in players doesn't override the problems he believes are the result of consistent exposure to violent images. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Today we're considering the possible impact of video game violence on our consciousness. Some media scholars say we should be more concerned than others, and we're sampling both opinions today. Dimitri Williams is assistant professor in the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Southern California. He studied the research on the effects of media violence and admits to falling somewhere in the middle of this debate. My main takeaway is that we've been looking for the same kinds of patterns that scientists have found usually with television, which is to say that if you watch something for a while, it tends to make you think and possibly behave more aggressively. My general uh, read of the research is that it's somewhat inconclusive, which is, I hope everybody understands, is different from saying that there are no problems and we'll never find problems. But more or less, we've studied people playing games by themselves for short amounts of time, and we've make, we're making long-term claims about what happens to them over the lifespan uh, in situations where they play with each other. And if there are a couple things we've learned in mass media research, it's that the presence of other people play a, a big role and that you need to look at things over time to be able to make long-term conclusions. And even though we have a lot of research, we don't have much in the way of long-term research. And only recently have we been starting to do research that's sophisticated enough to get the kinds of control we like scientifically and to include other people. Really, it's just the last few years where I've started to see social variables enter. And that's particularly important in an era where we're playing more and more together with other people. Because if you study things in the lab that don't occur outside the lab, it's not particularly useful. Dimitri Williams, what do you make of the argument and research that suggests that media violence desensitizes viewers? So they're less moved by violence in different contexts or require an increasing level of explicitness to be moved. First of all, the desensitization research I think is good. Um, I think it's it's done well, especially for the television research. And the stuff I've seen in the video game research I find convincing, but again, you have this short-term, long-term problem. And the only time people have been able to do anything kind of long-term is when you ask somebody in a survey, how much do you play games and how desensitized are you? And you find they're related and you don't know which caused the other. You don't know if desensitized people play or if playing causes desensitization. So to really get it, you've got to get it long-term research and that doesn't exist. Having said that, if the short-term stuff bears out, 
um, it's some of the particularly strong uh, research, specifically some stuff done by Brad Bushman at Michigan, where they get people um, to play a game and then they put them in a situation, um, say somebody outside the lab is pretending to be attacked or assaulted, and then you ask the person who's just played the game, you know, how likely are you to go to help? And the people who've played the more violent uh, stuff are less likely to go help. So if that bears out of a long term, that, that would be disturbing. You don't want desensitized people. And it does tend to lead to all kinds of problems. So that would be a bad thing. I would have a problem with it like any uh, individual would. We'll still get into issues of policy and freedom of choice and the role of the state and all that. But, you know, on the face of it, that's not a good thing. If studies are as you suggest, inconclusive in whole, and some researchers, well, I guess all researchers, always say more testing is needed, right? Um, are parents and society in general justified to show some concern anyway about violent play? I mean, you're a parent. Parents are, are certainly allowed to be concerned with whatever they like to be concerned with. Uh, I, it's not my job or any researcher's job to say, don't worry. But what we can do is present some data and put things in a larger context and ask, what are the things you should be worried about? We are often afraid of the wrong things, and when we are having national concerns about child abductions and child violence, we want to think about, well, what are the causey things? It's very easy to say, well, it's because of coarse media or problems, rather than thinking that it might be something more systemic or disturbing, like uh, we have you know, rampant abuse of children by relatives and by um, uh, friends and family members. It's not strangers. It's not the video game boogeyman. It's the people we know and that the causes of abuse and neglect might very well be matched with, say, poverty um, or malnutrition. Um, and, and these are social and systemic forces that are much more difficult, much more complicated to talk about. It's far easier to say, you know, it was Ozzy Osbourne, uh, it was the Beatles, it was the video game. Now, as I said before, those things may well turn out to be part of the problem, but we should always be a little bit cautious when we go to the easy fix rather than confronting the systemic stuff that might be disturbing to us personally. Honestly, I worry far more about people modeling uh, bad behaviors they see from real life people than I do from fake people. And all you have to do is turn on the nightly news to see examples of extremely bad behavior from real people. And so if you're worried about it from the point of view of, I see a model and I'm going to imitate that model, I'd be far more concerned with real humans than I would be with virtual ones. What I hear from some people who are concerned about the possible negative effects of violent media on kids or adults is that the sheer volume and growing intensity of violent images can't be helping any. Um, I have to give you a mixed answer on this. I don't want to be a complete naysayer, um, so people think I'm a nut and I'm just defending anything. But um, most media fare isn't necessarily plain, harmful, or helpful on its own, almost anything can be turned into good or bad depending on the context in which it's viewed and the kind of person who views it. You can take what I would consider morally objectionable content like the stuff that's in Grand Theft Auto. Now, I wouldn't let my extremely small children play that. I have a five-year-old and uh, my daughter is not going to be playing that anytime soon. She's not necessarily capable of distinguishing fantasy from reality and she's much more impressionable. And that's my read of my daughter. Um, however, when she gets a little bit older and probably younger than the box rating, I might play that game with her and we would talk about what's right and wrong. And so something which is objectionable in the face can be turned into a teaching tool. But the necessary condition there is that I'm there as a guide. I'm there to redirect. So I, I tend to be of the 
parenting school of thought that I will expose my children to lots of stuff, but I'll be there to moderate it and help interpret and give my children the literacy skills to um, then deal with it on their own. And a lot of the problems um, that we run into are when parents buy the box based on a rating or without looking at a rating and never interact with their children, don't talk to them about it, don't understand what meanings the kids are making out of it. And that's just kind of throwing your kids to the wolves. And I don't care what the medium is. Dimitri Williams from the University of Southern California. Media educator Bob McCannon would say that the wolves are in charge of the hen house as it is. I asked him to respond to the most common defenses of violence in video games, or television and movies for that matter. One being that entertainment producers are only following the demand. Violent movies, violent TV shows, and violent games draw big audiences, they say. So we're giving the audience what it wants. Well, this is what we call the drug pusher defense. And you hear this a lot from Doug Lowenstein, who's the head of the video game, um, the video game manufacturer's PR operation. He says it all the time. Well, s kids would probably uh, use, use cocaine and crack and, and uh, dope if we made it available to them uh, regularly. But we don't. The simple fact of the matter is that we have age requirements for buying alcohol. We have age requirements for many things that are not good for kids. Video game defenders say that to those who might propose video game censorship legislation, that the First Amendment protects the media from restrictions on violent content. Well, it's interesting to me that the First Amendment was actually designed to protect individuals and to protect individuals with minority interests. That's what the founding fathers had in mind when they designed uh, the First Amendment. However, um, today the First Amendment is being used most of all by the entertainment industry. The entertainment industry says all the responsibility should be on the parents. Parents, you do the supervision you be the people the, with the sole responsibility for turning it on, turning it off, knowing what's in every video game, knowing what's in every movie, and being the guardian of your kid's mental health. We, the entertainment industry, have no responsibility. We have a First Amendment right to pump all the crap we want into your kid's culture. Well, you know what? I don't buy that especially since their rating systems don't seem to function very well and are deliberately designed to be misleading, deliberately designed to be ineffective. Now, remember, I'm not saying that all video games are bad and that there are not excellent video games out there. But these kilographic video games where you basically do nothing but kill, they should not be in the hands of youngsters. Wherever the research lands, it seems safe to say that the public is concerned about violence in the media. A 2003 poll asked, do you believe that on-screen violence in the forms of films, television, computer games encourages violence in society? 73% say yes, 27% say no. A 2004 Gallup poll asked, does the entertainment industry need to make a serious effort to significantly reduce the amount of sex and violence in its movies, television shows, and music? 75% said that it should make serious efforts. 24% said it does not need to make serious efforts. So you've got a public that seems very clear about how it feels about violence in the media. What would you suggest about their turning that concern into 
some action. Well, I hate to use the, the, the common old saws that people say in a, in a situation like this. People need to be more active. They need to contact their representatives. They need to, uh, you know, write letters, um, write letters um, thanking people that produce good TV programs and good video games as well as complaining about the ones that are bad. Okay, so when you suggest writing their legislators – are you talking about them asking for government regulation? Absolutely. We we, recu- we regulate all sorts of things in this culture, and um, no one would stand for uh, pumping raw, hardcore pornography into a young child's head. Well, what's the distinction between pumping all sorts of different ways to interactively in ever more realistic virtual environments kill, mangle, maul, blow up, shoot. Um, you can't tell me that that is not just another kind of pornography. If you did have parents coming to one of your workshops or one of your presentations and saying, I am ready to step up with my own kids, what can I do? What should I be doing? What would you be telling them? I tell parents that the most important thing for their kid's developing brain is to talk with them. The neurophysiological research on this is conclusive. Talking uh, with kids, not necessarily baby talk, but talking with them about things in an age-appropriate manner with them uh, helps develop that very plastic growing brain of kids that is doing about 85% of its growing from ages 0 to 15. It is important to talk with kids. It is also amazing that in our society we talk less and less with our kids. Surveys show this. The next most important thing is to read with your young kids and to play with your young kids. And and when they are young, uh, ages two to eight, it's really important to develop habits of self-directed, constructive, active play. When you are watching a video game, Very few cells of the brain and the body are involved compared to active, uh, self-directed, creative play. You talked a lot about young people and kids. Um, It's interesting that while most people say they think violence in the media should be curbed, almost the same overwhelming percentages say in surveys, violence in the media doesn't affect them. Others might be at risk, maybe young people, but not them. So let's talk a little bit about risks to adults. Author Jim Potter calls that one of his 11 myths of media violence. He says that people aren't aware of the variety of negative effects on their behavior, physiology, emotions, attitudes, knowledge. He says they're missing most of the picture about how violence might be affecting them as adults. You know, I have friends who say, I won't go to a violent movie because I can sort of feel it destroying my soul. One of the most common things that I will hear from people is, I took the television set out of my bedroom. I no longer go to sleep at night with those stories in my mind. I sleep better. And you know what? The research shows that when 
people take less violence into their their system, that lots of things get better. That's Bob McCannon, co-president and co-founder of the Action Coalition for Media Education. We also heard from Dimitri Williams, assistant professor in the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Southern California, and James Paul G., education professor at Arizona State University. For links to our guests' websites, their research and writings, and more on this discussion of violence in video games, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. We can also hear all the programs in our series, order CDs, sign up for a podcast or a newsletter, and it's also where you can go to make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program. Donations from people like you help us continue this work. Any amount will help. Do your part at peacetalksradio.com. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD Project at peacetales.org, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to Peace Talks Radio. Music